We're in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, as we continue in our series, uh, Becoming the Church, Stories of the First Jesus People. I'd like to read it to us. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. From the book of Acts, we learn that we have a God who loves. He is a gracious gracious God. And it's demonstrated in Acts, especially when the Jesus people begin to go beyond their Jewish roots, their Jewish beginnings, their Jewish heritage, their, their Jewish upbringing, to reach out to the Gentiles. Those who don't follow the rules of God who don't even know the one true God. In fact, uh, many of those who are Gentiles, or technically called pagans, they believe in many gods. And, uh, and so, you know, really it's the Jews and the Gentiles and everybody else. And God has a plan to reach the whole world because he's the creator. His gospel, and by the way, you need to mark this in your mind and your heart. The word gospel comes from a Greek expression that means good news. Good news. And that's why you hear gospel and good news used simultaneously. And the word good news or gospel is not exclusive 
to a religious context that is to the New Testament. It's used in general Greek, in, in other contexts. And co- in, in, I'll bring attention to that a little bit later. But the point is, is that um, this good news of the gospel is meant for the whole world. And God's love is demonstrated in the spread of that. Now, if you've kind of got that in your head, you have to understand when historians do their work, um, you know, to be a purist as a historian, uh, you can't make reference to the supernatural. So when historians do their work, they're looking for cause and effect. They're looking for the connections between events. And when historians look for incredible events, they look for people behind those incredible events. So, who was it that took the gospel to the Gentiles, the historians ask? Well, they look at Philip, remember? As it begins right here in verse 19, it talks about the persecution that, that really caused the Greek-speaking Jews to flee Judea, that is, where Jerusalem is and the surroundings, where all of this happened. Um, you see, Jesus, even in John 3.16, for God so little, He gave His one and only Son, or His only begotten Son. Well, Jesus gave His life on the cross. He was buried. He was raised. In his resurrected body, he had contact with his disciples for about 40 days leading up to Pentecost. He told them that he had to go to the Father, and so he ascended and returned to the Father. He was glorified, seated at the right hand of God, so that the promise of God could be poured out. His Holy Spirit, his divine presence, actually poured out on the church. And that took place in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and that's when this whole thing began. But there were some who opposed it and persecuted it. Stephen was killed. The church was scattered. And that's what's referred to. And if you've been with us week by week, we've been following that as the churches begin to reach out. And we saw Philip. He's a a guy. Did he think this up? To go to the Gentiles, to to kind of go beyond the Jews, to go, so to speak, to those who uh, weren't... You know, your first pick to hear this good news from God, was it Philip? Well, he did meet that Ethiopian eunuch. He was prompted, but it didn't originate with him. You remember the story? He was prompted. A messenger of God spoke to him, and then the Holy Spirit prompted him. Even in Acts chapter 9, when Paul met the risen Lord, the purpose, there was a a main purpose in this, not only to to kind of bring that good news to Paul firsthand, but the drama of it all was to impress upon Paul that God wanted him to be his anointed one to bring the good news to the Gentiles. In the last couple of weeks, we saw Peter. God sends him a vision. And then he's prompted by the Spirit, and he's led to Cornelius, who's a Gentile. He's a centurion in the Roman army. And he's stationed in one of the most uh, Gentile places within Palestine at the time, Caesarea. And 
Cornelius and his family respond to the gospel, receive the Holy Spirit, and the church is beginning to reach beyond its Jewish beginnings. And now we come to chapter 11, verse 19, and we learn that as that persecution took place and, and those first Jewish Christians, the first Jesus people, fanned out, there were some who went and only told Jews, but there were men of Cyrene and Cyprus who went to Antioch and talked to Gentiles, talked to Greek-speaking Gentiles, to pagans. And what did they preach? It tells us right there, they preached Jesus as Lord. It says, in fact, they told them the good news, Jesus is Lord. I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. And many turned... We're told in verse 21, many turned to the Lord. And then, word goes up to to the church in Jerusalem. And by the way, up. When we think of going up, like if you go up in California, you look at a map and you think, go up towards Sacramento or go up toward Oregon. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, when you go up to Jerusalem, it doesn't matter where you are on the map. Everyone always goes up to Jerusalem. It, all, it is geographically higher, but it's a, it's a term of reverence. You're going up to the holy city. So when they went up to Jerusalem, uh, when the news went up to Jerusalem, to the church there, they sent Barnabas. And when Barnabas got there in Antioch, he saw what was going on, and he says something that's very important. He says, he saw. He arrived, he saw, and he rejoiced. What did he see? What caused him to rejoice? The grace of God at work. And that really is the message of Acts. There is no one person. The reason I emphasize that Acts tells us God loves us is because he has a plan, and he is pushing this plan to reach beyond his own people, the Jews, to make the people of all the earth his people, the Gentiles, pagans too. The gospel is for everyone. And that's what we see here. We see God not using just Peter or just Philip, but even men from Cyrene and Cyprus. And we'll see him using Paul, a most unlikely candidate, to bring the gospel to people just like you and me. And that is hallmarked in verse 23 when when Barnabas saw the grace of God, the evidence of the grace of God, or as some translations say, the the grace of God at work. Now, what did he see? What does that look like? What does the grace of God look like? Well, it looks like pagans changed. That's what it looks like. It looks like People like you and me transformed by the gospel. There are people here this morning that even a year ago or two years ago were living a very different life than what you're living right now. And, of course, in our world, uh, that means many of us are living totally without God in a secular society where God doesn't even exist. And, and the, the whole movement of, of television, the media, the culture, and, you know, is, hey, there's no God. Just us. Just one life to live. 
you know, live it while you can. Make the best of it. And a lot of us are out there doing it. Trying to get all we can. We've only got so much time. We're living for ourselves. In that day and age, in Antioch, many were living just like the rest of the culture, but instead of no God, there were many gods. They led a very pagan lifestyle. Uh, some of it was all about me, meanness, number one. And then, just like you, they heard the good news of the one true God, and it says they turned to Him. And that transformation or that change really is visible because it's visible in you. The difference in your life, the difference in your outlook, the difference in uh, the things that you value. In many cases, uh, some of us are not committed to our... I mean, when you're living for yourself, you're not committed to anyone. No committed relationship. Fulfill your appetites and all your desires. But it doesn't take long for us to realize how empty that is and how lonely it is. But in many cases, they, you know, people don't hear that good news. They don't have anywhere to turn. These people turn to the one true God, just like many of you have. And you're leading a different life. And people notice it. They observe it. They can see the grace of God in your life. They may not call it that, but they see that you're committed to people, that you value people, that you work hard, you have a different set of values, you're not just out for yourself anymore, and so forth and so on. And it shows up, and that's what the grace of God looks like. And that is what Barnabas saw. He saw people transformed by God. But then I asked myself, how does that happen? I mean, I, I can really understand what the grace of God looks like, especially in people. But how does it happen? How does the grace of God change us? What is the grace of God? You could spend many, many messages, many hours talking and teaching and learning about the grace of God. But basically, to put it quite clearly, the grace of God is the generosity of God. It is, it, it is His generosity. It's His favor. He doesn't make you pay for it. He doesn't make you earn it. He's like a rich guy who comes along, spots you, and leaves you a big, big tip that you didn't earn or deserve, that you never saw coming. That is the generosity of God. But His generosity is far grander and greater and bigger than that. And really, the whole truth of the gospel is a container for the generosity of God. You can point to Jesus Christ and what He's done, and you can see the generosity of God. You can see the transforming work of that truth in your life, and you can see the grace of God. And the Jesus people that we look at and see here, those who turn to Him in verse 21, those who remain true to Him in verse 23, those who are taught about Him in verse 26, they all teach us about the grace of God and that it is the good news of God in the Gospel. 
In fact, I would put it this way. They teach us that grace is the good in good news. It is the good in the gospel. And it really reflects the generosity, the favor of God. In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian, wrote a a, a pretty thin book called The Cost of Discipleship. I remember reading it. I encourage you to grab a copy. And it's so easy now. You can snag one off of Amazon or, you know, get them through a used book. Who knows, at this point, for a book that was written in 1937, you may be able to download it for free in some fashion, like a PDF file or something. It's not that big. The theme of his book, or a key issue in his book, better stated, is cheap grace. Cheap grace. Now, just to put that in perspective, um, I think it was back in August, Shelley and I got a few days of a friend of ours, no connection with any of us here at the church, but a friend of ours uh, offered us a chance to stay at a little place she had on the coast. So we went there, and uh, uh, one evening I turned on the television, there was only one channel (laughs) and one program. And uh, I was introduced to storage wars. <laughs> In fact, uh, you've never seen, some of you have a perplexed look on your face. You've never seen storage wars. Okay, well, anyway, uh, storage wars is about people who go into these, uh, these places where you can buy a locker or a garage and, and you know, the warehouse whatever thing you want. We have them around here, these storage places. And they go in, evidently, when people uh, leave a locker and they abandon it, eventually it goes up for bid. And so these people, they go in and they bid it, and you get to watch them bid and find the treasures in there. You know, did they pay too much? Did they find some treasure in there that they never imagined? Anyway, I ended up watching about two hours of that or four shows. And uh, (laughs) it was really kind of addictive, you know. Maybe it's my age. I like old things. Um, well, that led uh, to other things. Uh, storage wars led to American pickers. I'd never heard of that either. Any of you watch American pickers? And you're thinking right now, Pastor, you watch too much television. But also, I also got onto another show, and these all have to do with old things, which I told you I'm interested in. I'm, I'm kind of a... a armchair archaeologist. But anyway, I also started watching Pawn Stars. Now, in all of these shows, here's the point. In all of these shows, uh, for example, if, if you bid on a locker and one of these people, they find some treasure and they say, what is this worth? Or the American pickers, they're out on the American countryside and they come across an old barn and they think, I'll bet there's something buried in that old barn that nobody's ever seen and they knock on the door and they see if, ask if they can pick around and they find something that's, and they'll say, what do you want for this? What's this worth? We'd like to buy this. Or on Pawn Stars, they go into this pawn shop and uh, 
the guy says, what do you got there? And they says, well, this is what I got. And he says, what do you want to do with it? Do you want to pawn it or you want to sell it? And they say, I want to sell it. He says, well, what do you want for it? You see, in all these things, there are sometimes these treasures, and we have to figure out what are they really worth. And so I ask you, what is the grace of God worth? What if somebody walked into a pawn store and said, you know, I found this in, gra- in Grandma's attic, and I don't know what it's worth. What will you give me for it? Or you get a bid on a locker, and you find something in there, and you say, I've got to find out from an expert, what's this worth? And that's the question for us this morning. What is the grace of God worth? You see, it's free. You don't have to... Uh, In fact, you can't earn it. That's the message of the gospel. You can know the Lord God, Creator, when you personalize the truth of the gospel that He actually loves you, that He gave His Son for you. He wants to be a part of your life not just on special or high religious holidays, but day in and day out. He wants to walk with you and talk with you. He wants to be a part of your life. What's that worth? We need an expert to tell us. Bonhoeffer says, that all too often we accept that grace and then we treat it as though it doesn't cost much at all. That's what he calls cheap grace. See, behind that concept of grace is a loving God who generously, generously, without cost, without really demand, says enter into a relationship with me. But what Bonhoeffer says is the cost of that relationship is discipleship. And that's what we see right here in chapter 11. We see it when they turn to the Lord. We see it when they're true to the Lord. We see it when they're taught in the Lord. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Because they value the grace and we can see in their turning and in being true to the Lord and taught by the Lord, that this grace is something that they value very, very much. Let's look at verses 19 through 21, where it says that they turned to the Lord. I want to share with you very quickly, they were in Antioch. Now, I know very few of you know where Antioch is. Um, I think we have an Antioch in California here on the coast. I actually went through there once. And so that might come to mind. But Antioch is just north. It's in Syria. If you look in the back of a a map of the journeys of Paul, you'll see Cyprus just off the coast of Palestine. And there's a kind of a long neck or nose on Cyprus, and it points right at Antioch of Syria. Antioch of Syria is where they were, but there's more to Antioch. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that Antioch is one of three or third of the great cities of the Roman Empire. Now that's significant. If I asked you what's the greatest, what would people say, what would the world say is the greatest city 
in the United States. New York. New York, New York. And what would be the second greatest city? L.A. And what would be the third greatest city? Chicago. Antioch is the Chicago of the Roman Empire. It is the crossroads of the east. Everything in Rome crosses through Antioch on the Orontes. It is a commercial, uh, it is a metropolitan city of great stature. And just outside the city, not more than five miles, is Daphne. Daphne is a major, major religious site. There is a temple to Ashtart, to Diana, to Apollo. In fact, this is kind of ironic, for all of Antioch's greatness, it's almost dwarfed because by the significance of the religious site that is associated with it, and it's called Antioch at Daphne. The point is this. This is a major political, Roman political city of tremendous religious significance. Third in the Roman Empire. And now the gospel has been planted there. And many have responded. And what was the message? Jesus is Lord. That was the message. It says it right there. The good news is Jesus is Lord. Now, the Roman Empire said something entirely different. In fact, Rome ruled the world, really. Any place that was anything was under Roman dominion. And the subjects of Rome said something entirely different. Caesar is Lord. This is an amazing message to say that Jesus is Lord. When in the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. In fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, around 1907, a German and a British scholar, the British scholar, William Ramsey, the German scholar, Adolf Deismann, they went all over the Mediterranean, particularly where they interested in were the sites and the cities of early Christianity, and especially those of Gentile Christianity where Paul planted the gospel. And you know what they found? Stone inscription after stone inscription after stone inscription. I mean, it overwhelmed them. I mean, just the impact of seeing all of this archaeological stonework that kept saying things like this. Augustus Caesar is divine. Augustus Caesar is God. Augustus Caesar is Redeemer. Augustus Caesar is Savior. And it, it was impressed upon them in a most powerful, powerful way that when Jesus' people called Jesus Lord, called Jesus God, called Jesus Redeemer, called Jesus Savior, that they were denying that to Caesar. And so when we read here that they turned to the living God, that they turned to the Lord, we have to understand this is not just some religious talk. They're putting everything on the line. 
These people are making religious and political choices to make God first in their life. In fact, they were not the only ones. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, in the very opening, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, you've turned to live or serve the living God, turning from idols. Let me read it to you exactly You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Or in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, there Paul is kind of admonishing them because he sees that some of them are being tempted to return to their old ways. And he says, formerly you did not know God. You were in bondage to being that by nature to beings that by nature are no gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? You see, when we're told here that they turned to God, they were cherishing, they were valuating the grace of God by denying those other gods any place in their lives anymore. They were valuating the worth of a relationship with the one true God, His grace, when they said no to Caesar, even should it cost them their lives, because they were serving the one true God of life. And that's a big difference. Cheap grace is when we take God for granted and treat Him like a, like a parent. Let me, let me explain myself. When I was a kid growing up, I thought... I don't know that I had the sense to write it or say it like this, but this is the way I felt. I felt like my parents were not real people with real lives, that they were there for me, that they were to provide for me, to provision me. You know what I'm talking about. And sometimes we think about God that way. As gracious and as good as He is, we don't value, we don't treasure His grace and His goodness. And that's really what the Gospel calls us to. That's what Bonhoeffer is calling us to in, the, in his little book. the cost of discipleship. Well, we see it also in verses 22 through 24 where we see the word true. They were true to the Lord in verse 23 in the New International Version. It says now, if I can just review briefly, Barnabas came and he saw the grace of God at work and he rejoiced. Now just track with me for a second. And then it says what? It tells us his credentials. He was a good man. Now Barnabas is the only man in the book of Acts that's called good. It also says he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was full of faith. This man has credentials to recognize the grace of God. And he comes to Antioch and he sees, listen, 
He sees what God is doing. It's not what Barnabas has done. It's what God is doing. It is God's work. It is the grace of God. And yet, Barnabas says to them, not once, but continually, if we were to translate this quite literally, he continually, continually admonished or urged or encouraged them to stick with the Lord. That's what it literally says, to stick with the Lord. If I were to translate this, it says, be true to the Lord, which captures the essence of it. But it would be, to with a resolute heart, with a resolute heart, stick with the Lord. Stick to the Lord. Stay with the Lord. Now think about it for a moment. Why does he have to say that? Why does anyone have to be admonished? I mean, if if God in His grace is doing this work already, why do we have to be admonished? Because we are sinners. We are a cussed people. (laughs) Think about what it's like to be a pastor. In other words, I mean, we aren't made this way. I wasn't born this way. This doesn't all come naturally. I make choices in my life to put the Lord first. Each choice I make is a choice of faith. And what Barnabas is saying is, is that yes, I have the credentials to recognize the grace of God. It is bona fide grace of God at work, and yet he goes around telling them, stick with the Lord, stick with the Lord, stick with the Lord. Why? Because... We need to make the Lord a habit in our lives. It doesn't come naturally to put Him first. You know what comes naturally? Putting ourselves first. That's what comes naturally. I think that is amazing to me. We think, well, if God's grace can do it, we don't need to do anything else. And that is when His grace is cheapened because we kind of lay down and just say, God, you do it. And we kind of cruise along through life or drift with life. And we, we just think God's going to do it. He's going to save me in the end. It's all free. And Barnabas is saying, behind grace is God himself. And a relationship with him means putting him first, making choices for him, living for him, sticking with him, not giving up on him. And that is how faith grows. And that's how the truth becomes truth. And so he exhorts them, and he keeps urging them to resolve in their hearts to stick with the Lord, and he makes them a habit. How do you do that? Let me just, I was thinking about my wife, that beautiful woman singing in the praise team. She doesn't do that very often, by the way, but it was nice to see her up there. That's how I met her, or at least laid eyes on her, was she was singing in the choir. That was 38 years ago. Do you think it's always come easy? Do you think this marriage happens just because I picked the right woman? It takes a lot of work. I got to keep putting her first. I got to keep valuing her. I can still remember how I, I sat across the room with her and I thought, I mean, she was way out of my league. And I just thought, if I could just know her, if I could just date her, I would be the happiest man. And then you get married, you know. And then you're together all the time. 
And you know what I do to keep things fresh? I keep going back to those days and I think that is the woman that I remember longing to marry. Another thing that we do in our marriage, see, good things require habits. We need to be habits about God too. Shelley and I, we pledge to go to church all the time. Do you ever watch Jeopardy? I know it seems like I watch a lot of TV right now, but (laughs) in Jeopardy, I think Jeopardy is a cool game because you get all the answers even before there are any questions. And that's what happens when you make church a habit. You get the answers even before you need the you have the questions or need the answers. You need a place where God is looking out for you. His people are looking out for you. He's challenging you with His Word and His truth. He's giving you the answers before you even have the questions in life. But then when the questions come, you're not knocked off your feet. You're not broken on rocks like a ship that's run aground. You do that every week. And you learn things. There are going to be days you're going to get up and you're going to say, I don't want to go to church. I just want to sleep in. Oh, I just want to sit here on the couch and enjoy my cup of coffee. I feel that way. (laughs) And then you come and you say, what a blessing. God spoke to my heart. He gave me what I needed. You are not an accident. You're a part of his plan and his push. And church is a part of that. And you do some things just because it's right, but because you do it every time, God keeps at work in your life doing wonderful things. And you who are young marrieds, you need to make God a priority. You need to make His church a priority. Don't think about it, just do it, and you'll thank me later. Because you'll get the answers before you even have the questions. And then the last thing that we learn here in verses 25 and 26 is they're taught. And I, I just think it's beautiful because the grace that God demonstrated in this church in Antioch, when those from the, Agabus and the other prophets come from Jerusalem, and this church is on board, they're ready to share what they've been given. Grace, when you try to hold on to it and own it, it turns to ashes. Grace is meant to be given away because that's how we received it. That's how it really changes our heart. And that comes with learning. That's the kind of God we have. And that's what they were taught. Barnabas went and got Saul and they came back and for a year they poured themselves into these people, teaching them about God in Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that continues to capture our heart. That's how how faith really grows. You trust God when you are exercising faith. But you won't trust Him unless you know what a great God and good God He is. And that takes learning and growing, being exposed to His Word and who He is. And then when you begin to trust Him in some scary situations in your life, it'll be a stretch for you. You'll have to take some risks in your own personal comfort, but you'll step out and trust Him and your faith will grow your faith will grow. Grace is the good in good news because God is good. And this demonstrates it this morning. Once again, we do this routinely the first Sunday of every month because we need to always be reminded 
They're leaving to serve us. They'll be back (laughs) to bring us the bread and the cup. This symbolizes Jesus on the cross giving His life for us. This blood, this juice, blood red, represents the covenant that His life sealed for us. A covenant with God that is a relationship better than a marriage, more faithful than a contract of the highest quality is a contract which is called a covenant with God. He's faithful to us. And that's what we observe. You know what Bonhoeffer said is cheap grace? He said it's cheap grace when there's no discipleship. That's why he calls it the cost of discipleship. He says we, may, we turn grace or we evaluate or we evaluate God's grace as very costly when we give our lives to it. When we become disciples in a walk and a, and a life with God. That's what we're called to as we take this bread and this cup. Let's prepare our hearts. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You for this bread and this cup. It represents new life in a new covenant because there is no charge. There is no allegation. There is no indictment against us. There's nothing to keep us between a relationship between between us that we might have a relationship with you. And so we rejoice, but we also acknowledge, Lord, that every day your grace is new. Every day is a new beginning. And this is a new chance for us to deepen our commitment to you and our discipleship as we appreciate and value what you've done for us in Jesus Christ symbolized in this bread and this cup. We praise You, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.